of the series that the church is encouraging us to go through is in the book of Proverbs. We still have copies of these uh, living Proverbs up here in the front, and you are free to take those. And we have so many that if you want to take extras and pass them on, you are welcome to do so. So those are there. And a little bit later, I'm going to then, once we've talked about a biblical view of justice... I thought it might be appropriate uh, to actually also make available my little booklet on a biblical view of criminal justice. And so that is available there as well. And so we're going to spend some time uh, jumping through a lot of different verses. This is going to be kind of a sword drill. So if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to start in Proverbs 2 and 3. But we're going to look at three different principles related to justice. And then I thought I'd give you a little bit on this issue of criminal justice as well. It's kind of been in the news. You know, you've heard about defunding the police and what's the place of uh, law enforcement and the rest. So we'll get into all of those issues and try to give you some practical application as well. The first uh, theme that we're going to look at is a number of verses that talk about justice as really giving someone what is due to those individuals, whether good or bad. And again, if you would like to uh, find some of this material, although I see a lot of people pulling up their camera to take screenshots, you're free to do that as well, but it will also be on the website. But if you have a Bible, you might want to turn with me to Proverbs, but I'll read these out. And first of all, Proverbs 2, verses 6 through 9. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Then in chapter 3, verses 27 and following, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Then we can move over to a couple of other passages we see in chapter 16, uh, verse 11, a statement in which we see here, A just balance and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. And then one last one, and we'll look at some more in just a minute, chapter 18, verse 5, It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteousness of justice. And so a lot of this has to do with justice. Now, we can certainly talk about doing justice one to another. We can also talk about doing justice uh, as a country. And then, of course, we've been looking at the injustices right now with this war in Ukraine. So there's lots of application. But first of all, we and if you're taking some notes, you might want to put down this verse. I won't look it up, but it's kind of a famous verse in Micah 6, 8, that the Bible commands us to do justice. So just as I've said, I think Christians should be models of integrity. We should be good workers, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this issue of diligence. We should also, I think, be individuals that really want to do justice. 
And we will see, as I will look in just a minute in another passage in Deuteronomy, which I do put on the screen, that uh, justice comes from God because God is a God of justice. So where do we get our ideas of there? Now, the problem with this is it uses the word equity. And for those of you listening um, last Thursday, uh, equity has been redefined. We have equality and equity, and what equity sometimes means a difference. So we're going to use the biblical definition of that because sometimes that means something different in kind of our secular world and even our political meanings. And so the word for justice is mishpat. Uh, sometimes it'll be El Mishpat, if you want to uh, learn Hebrew 101, that's kind of the idea. But it means to treat somebody with equity, but what it means is not the way it's been translated today and used, but it means giving an individual what they deserve. If you've done good, you deserve praise. If you've done evil, you deserve uh, judgment, and it should be regardless of a person's social status. And this is why what I think you see so often is that there is a tendency to talk about this injustice that apparently prevailed in other cultures and then later even in Israel. Because treating people equitably means that you don't let a criminal off just because he or she is rich or powerful and you should not deny equal rights to someone who is of a lower status. And you see this also in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the idea of uh, Isaiah chapter 5, it talks about how in many cases the innocent are incarcerated and the guilty go free. Uh, this is a classic example of corruption. And if you go around the world, you see that corruption, unfortunately, happens too often. And here, the scriptures really address those issues. So this is one of those times where people say, well, you guys, you know, Christians, you know, you're so worried about a person's salvation, but you don't seem to care about justice. And here are some passages that remind us of that, because equity means that we ignore a social status as an individual. And, uh, you, you know, any lawyer in the room will recognize that sometimes you see the scale of justice held by what? A woman who is what? Blindfolded. Okay, and that's the ultimate goal. Has it always been the case in the United States? No. We have some very sad chapters in our American history in which that did not take place, but that should be our goal. Then knowing God and his wisdom help us to understand what is good and right and equitable. I won't take a long commentary, but at a time when our country rejects the idea of God, and rejects the idea of the Bible, then what do you use as your standard? And that, I think, is a real concern today, because we have so many people that believe in relativism, or believe in postmodernism. You have your view of truth, and I have my view of truth. You have a different view of truth. You have your view of ethics, I have my view of ethics. You have a different view of ethics. I don't even want to be on... 75 or on George Bush with people that don't believe in right or wrong. I certainly don't want to be in a courtroom with a jury that doesn't believe in right and wrong. And so I think this is going to be one of our great challenges here in the 21st century. But let me go on because that's a sermon unto itself. But again, look at some of the statements we've read here. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when you can do it. In other words, if you've got an opportunity to help someone, that is the case. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who trusts you. Also be honest and fair in all your business dealings. We'll come back to that verse in just a minute. And do not let the wicked get away with wrong 
or deprive the righteous of justice. Just think of the number of statements that Solomon is passing on to his son, but ultimately passing on to us. We should be, if anything, on the forefront of really wanting to address this issue of justice and to speak out against injustice. Now, there are also some things that are tied to it. We give people to or do regardless of their race, regardless of their social status, regardless of their traits. But it goes deeper than that as well. Just, of course, what we'll talk about in just a minute, bringing criminals to justice. But it also means ensuring justice, doing what is right in God's eye, and even how we treat one another. It's more than just mistreating people. It's doing what you can for individuals when you have the opportunity to do so. The God, uh, the law, God's laws of justice make generosity, for example, a command, not just a nice thing to do. And if you are making sure that you act justly and rightly and equitably, then, of course, you're fighting against injustice. And I want us to see that fighting injustice isn't just sort of optional, but really it's a command for us to be on the forefront of addressing as well. And then in verse 8, uh, 18, verse 5, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. That's probably an accurate term, but it misleads us because the word that we, the Hebrew word that we translate not good sounds like, well, it's not real good. No, the probably better way to translate it might be it's reprehensible, it's vile or wrong. So in other words, it's not just not good, it's really bad, if you use it the other phrase. And so again, it's just the idea of taking an honest inventory of our own hearts. Are we treating people equitably? Are we treating people honestly, fairly in all sorts of areas? Or do we make a criterion uh, in our mind of a number of things that we might use to judge an individual? But let's move on because there are a number of other sections that we'll look at as well. First of all, before I look at the Proverbs, I put up Deuteronomy 10. It's a long passage, but it's a reminder of why we have justice. What is our standard of justice? God's character. And we see this in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. That's kind of the idea that, remember, the, the idea that you would bribe or you bring some kind of offering for one of these uh, uh, gods to make the gods believe in you or to treat you nicely. Instead, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The principle here is, is just as you were sojourners, we should treat those in the land as well. Now, if we look at some of the passages here, we can see, first of all, in chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. Um, got it over here. Excuse me. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And so it gives us an understanding of the fact that just because somebody is poor, we don't mistreat them. Verse 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Then we have some other passages in 17, uh, verse 5, for example. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity 
will not go unpunished. Notice the connection here between believing that indeed if you treat someone who is poor uh, in a shabby way, you are ultimately challenging even the fact that because they're created in the image of God, that you're insulting the Creator as well. Verse 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And then one other passage here in uh, the last chapter of Proverbs, which goes into all sorts of different aspects of a woman. But here it says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And so this reminds us again that we shouldn't show partiality to the rich and the powerful, but we should treat all individuals because everyone is created in God's image. And it's interesting because these passages, if you look at that, really focus primarily on justice for the poor. Now, why is that? Well, it isn't because the poor deserve more justice, as it is the fact that there is always a danger in any culture for people to treat the rich differently than the way we treat the poor. So that's why Solomon felt it's so important. I gave you multiple verses here in which he's talking about defending the poor because sometimes if they don't have certain kind of social status or economic power that the rich have or even the middle class have, they are mistreated. So that's why you see so many verses even here in the Proverbs about the poor. Uh, God cares about everyone getting justice, but those who have money and status and power typically get justice on their own. And sadly, even to this day, if you have money, you can hire a better lawyer rather than a defender that was just assigned to you in the courts. And so, again, we recognize the importance of uh, there are certain individuals that are vulnerable who need someone else to seek justice for them. And that's what that passage in Proverbs 31 talks about. And then we just looked at a minute ago how God is described in Deuteronomy 10 as great and mighty does not show partiality, doesn't even take a bribe. I love that turn of phrase there as well. This is the God that we serve and the character that we should reflect in the world. He commands us to give generously to the poor. Also, I love this, not to harden your heart or shut your hand. Do you remember another time when we see in the Old Testament of someone whose heart was hardened? Pharaoh. Remember that? So again, the implication is, just as you were mistreated as slaves, just as you were sojourners in land, now don't forget the status of your great-great-great-grandchildren, great-grandparents, now that you're the great-great-grandchildren. But again, give to those individuals freely. The way we care for the poor, I think, is a response to the way God has cared for us. Those of you that heard me Thursday night, I talked about bridge builders. I talked about West Dallas Community. I talked about Northwest Bible Church and what they do in Vickery, um, as well as, of course, what uh, is happening right now with bridge builders and Bonton. Lots of opportunities, even in this church and in other churches, to actually take, uh, res- you know, take the resources we have and to give generously to others. And then it goes on to say that the, most people treat the poor with contempt, but then they, we try to befriend the rich and powerful. But notice how Jesus set the standard upside down, the way it should be, and that is he treated the poor and the outcast with respect and with dignity, and sometimes even um, dismissed rather quickly some of the rich people, uh, certainly some of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so not only do we see that in the Gospels with Jesus, 
We also see it in the book of James, James chapter 2, in terms of how we would treat other individuals as well. Proverbs reminds us again, the poor are created in God's image, so when we show contempt to the poor, what? We're in a sense actually mocking God. And Jesus says that when he separates the sheep from the goats on the judgment day, uh, it will be revealed how much we treated the least of these. Who are the least of these? These are the poor. And to show you how biblically illiterate people in government are, I think I've told the story before, but there was an individual I interviewed a while back who was actually talking about the fact that when they, under George W. Bush's administration, wanted to reach out to the poor, he kept talking about the least of these. And every time he saw the uh, particular message that was the speech was going to be given by President Bush, they crossed the least of these out every time he put it back in. And finally, uh, they got into a meeting, and the guy says, I don't know what this least of these things is. He said, well, if you have a Bible, well, I don't have a Bible. Well, here, take my Bible. It's in Matthew 25. So, I mean, he could not even get in his head where the phrase least of these is because obviously he'd never seen it. And yet it's a very important phrase there as well. Also, if we know and love God, then we should treat others the way God and the way Jesus would. And this includes having, of course, a heart of generosity for the poor. Also, to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. That's true for the poor. It's true for the unborn. It's true for those individuals that uh, do not have an advocate. If anything, we should be on the forefront of fighting for justice for those individuals as well. But real quickly, before we get into some of the application, let's, if we can, look at the third area. And this, again, is in Proverbs. It talks about that we should not be dishonest or oppress the poor in order to gain wealth and power. And so, first of all, in verses, uh, verse, actually, chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Then we move over to chapter 16. And verse 11, and we see, once again, a just balance in scales of the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. Then we go over to chapter 20, verse 23. Uh, You can see this is kind of a a slur drill, isn't it? We have another one. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. And uh, just in the interest of time, let me pick a couple of others real quickly. Uh, Chapter 22, verses 16 and following, uh, we have a couple of passages here that uh, remind us of that. And uh, we'll just take uh, verses uh, 22. And as a matter of fact, I think I'll skip it. I think you can get enough of them there. Because what we want to do is then look at the fact that the Proverbs also speak out against those individuals who cheat anyone for financial gain. And so what it seems to be, and I found this in some of our commentaries, that what you would have in the ancient world were two sets of scales, maybe some two sets of even uh, weights that were used. And so this was the way in which you could actually cheat individuals. If you go to a gas pump uh, pump today, and um, I wouldn't recommend it since it's very expensive, you'll notice there's a seal there to make sure that that gas pump actually pumps out a gallon because those gallons are a lot more expensive than they were just a few weeks ago. And there is an attempt to constantly do that. If you ever used to buy meat from a butcher, they always used to talk about the guy that sometimes kept his thumb on the scale when he was, you were getting some of the meat. And so this is a speaking out against that kind of dishonesty that took place. And so it is applying, obviously, to the idea of scales and measures. 
But some of the material the church provided say, it's not just about that, because I don't know how many of us have a butcher shop or how many of us have a gas station, but it applies to other areas as well. The point is, is that we should be pillars of integrity in business, whether it's in your home or in the boardroom or whatever you might be doing, an opportunity for you to stand for that. It may mean asking a friend to volunteer for your organization, but sometimes you might be deceitful about how much time it's really going to take. That was one of the examples in the material they provided. I never thought about that. Uh, in general, don't take advantage of people. Don't cheat anybody out of time or money in any way. If anything, we should practice justice, even in our own personal lives, the way we deal with other individuals. And I thought it was kind of interesting to me because you have this contrast oftentimes in the Proverbs. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is what? His delight. And so this is the idea that be honest when you interact with other individuals. Don't say, I'm going to send it next week when you got the money in your hand. Don't say, you know, I'll get to that someday. Or even more recently, I'll pray for you when you know you're not going to pray for him. I mean, there are just a lot of ways in which I think what it is saying is be a man or woman of integrity in whatever you do. And then, Proverbs 21:15. I didn't read that, but we can get that later. When justice is done, it's a joy the righteous, but a terror to the evildoers. And here's the vision. On the day of judgment, the day of the Lord that we've looked at before in 1 Thessalonians, you know, when Jesus shows up, you know, it's interesting. Pastor Graham was talking about even the current president, even the president of Russia will someday bow the knee which is really powerful when you think about that. But also, if you have been an evildoer, this is going to be a time of terror. But if you are a believer, this is going to be a time of joy. And here Solomon uses the same kind of idea that, in a sense, it would be a day of terror, of judgment for the wicked. But it would also be what? A vindication for the righteous. Only people who are upset when justice is done are the ones who benefit from injustice. So I thought it was kind of interesting. There will be a time in which the scales of justice will be made right. Sometimes people get away with injustice. They get away with corruption. But there will be an ultimate judgment that will be brought. And the righteous then should rejoice when justice is done here on this earth, when injustice is corrected, even if it doesn't personally affect us. Simply because we should be the people that stand for justice. Think also how you'd feel when a well-known criminal is finally found guilty. We've seen some of those in the news more recently. You know, you rejoice for the families, even though it really never affected you. And that's really the kind of mindset that we should have. Only the ones who'd be upset in the courtroom would be the criminal, maybe his lawyer. But we should feel the same way anytime injustice is righted anywhere in the world because we as God's people should fight as hard for justice for those who cannot fight for themselves. So with that as a background, I've given myself only a few minutes, but I did want to maybe share a few thoughts about this. We've been hearing a lot about defund the police. 
We've heard a lot about whether or not uh, uh, we should have a criminal justice system revamped and a number of other things. So I thought I'd just share just a few points from my booklet. We've got a couple copies here. I didn't bring a lot because I'm not sure this is something that everybody's interested in. But if you are, there's one there. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the myths about crime. I think I have five in there. I only picked two in the interest of time. How can we fight crime? Again, about a half a dozen. I think I only picked two. And a little bit about what the Bible says about crime and punishment. The first is, first of all, the importance of recognizing that we have been, in some respects, in a process for many decades now of decriminalizing behavior, or, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan has said, defining deviancy down. In the early 1980s, the crime rates began to rise rather dramatically, and he was writing about that then. He was the senator from New York, in which we, in order to make ourselves feel good about the crime rate going up, we said, well, you know, sometimes you're going to have... Uh, if you have freedom, people are going to be stealing. And if you can't, and since you can't put a police officer in every corner, you know, there's going to be some muggings and things like that. And so he talked about this idea of the tendency in the modern world to define deviancy down. And even during that time, we began to decriminalize some of the behavior. It was interesting, the crime rate was going up when we were decriminalizing certain kinds of behavior. Then during the 1980s, the crime rate did go down. Does anybody think it's gone down now? No. Matter of fact, this last year there were 12 major cities, one of which is Austin, that had the highest rates of homicide ever before. And if you watched Tucker Carlson the other night, he was talking about the fact that in Houston, the crime rate has gone up an additional 50% just in the last couple of months. Now that one's due more to the fact that we have an open border and the cartels have moved into Houston. Wait till they move into Dallas, as Suzanne was saying the other day when we were talking about this. But nevertheless, he was pointing out the fact that our society has been willing to define deviancy down. To use Isaiah 5, we're willing to call evil good, right? And he talks about the fact that back in 1929 in Chicago, during Prohibition, there were four gangsters that killed seven gangsters on February 14th. That was called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. That was so shocking, it shocked a nation. Uh, it, It became a legend. There were actually two entries in World Book Encyclopedia because those six or seven people had been killed. This weekend, probably more than seven people will be killed in Chicago. But we just sort of define deviancy down. We just don't even think about it anymore. And the way we deal it is sort of normalized crime. We've been decriminalizing even more crime. Thursday, I was talking about the fact that when you have a district attorney that says, you know, we're no longer going to prosecute shoplifting unless it includes more than $1,000 of goods, you've already sort of decriminalized even that. And so how do we deal with it? Well, we lock our doors and windows. We install burglar alarms. Some of you live in gated communities. We try not to think about crime too much. Uh, But again, it's all part of this idea of defining deviancy down. But if we believe in justice, maybe we should speak out for some of those issues indeed. Another one is the myth that crime doesn't pay. Turns out, if you do the math, it really does. Uh, Because let's first of all recognize that some crime is irrational. You know, sometimes uh, there's a crime of passion, sometimes drug-induced crimes. But most crime has sort of a cost-benefit analysis. And if you think about this, if the expected punishment for a crime is low, then potential criminals commit a crime. If the expected punishment is high, that's known as a deterrent, and they're less likely. 
And the way to calculate this is to look at four probabilities. The probability of being arrested for a crime, the probability of being prosecuted, the probability of being convicted, and the probability of going to prison. Now, this study was done before we've had this decriminalization taken place and some of these district attorneys that aren't quite so serious about it. But back when this study was done a number of years ago by Morgan Reynolds at Texas A&M, he compiled just the statistics. I'll give you the ones and a lot of us in the booklet on burglary. And he concluded that a potential criminal might expect to spend only 4.8 days in prison for each act of burglary, meaning this. If what you're stealing in somebody's home is worth more than five days behind bars, the calculus goes the other direction. You can begin to calculate that out for other kinds of ideas, but you can see that this is one of those kinds of calculus that is done so often. You know, if I were to ask anybody to name the famous line from A Few Good Men, what's that? You can't handle the truth. But the line after it, I think, is more accurate because the colonel says we have men on walls with guns to protect us. But you know what? If we don't have men and women on those walls to protect us, for a long time people said, why do we need NATO? You know, there's no reason for NATO. Anybody change their mind on that one lately? Uh, Why do we need to fund the U.S. military? All we seem to be doing is withdrawing from Afghanistan. You think maybe we have to change our mind there? And for years we've been hearing what? decriminalize the police. But you can see that when there's no deterrence, what happens? Now, if you believe that people are basically good and we just need to solve the problem of poverty, then great. But if you start with a biblical view that says people have a sin nature, then you can see why we talk about police forces. Here's another one. Focus, how do we fight it? Focus on habitual criminals. One study found people already in the criminal justice system commit most of the violent crimes. This included those who had been arrested, convicted, and imprisoned, or who on probation or parole. The chronic offender has been arrested at least five times before his 18th birthday and has avoided arrest for dozens of other crimes. I know most of you don't have a chance to listen to Point of View, but this week I brought in a person that used to be in the Mafia, Robert Borelli. Robert Borelli used to be with the guys. Have you ever seen the movie Goodfellas? Have you ever seen Goodfellas? Those were his friends, not the actors, the people in Goodfellas, okay? And he eventually became a Christian. Matter of fact, he has this great ministry from Mafia to Ministry. But I was reading through Robert Borelli's book, and I said, as we started the interview, the first five chapters of your book all took place before you were 15 years of age, and you'd already been in knife fights and had killed somebody, you know. And, of course, he later became a wise guy and was very successful until he eventually got into drugs, and even some of the mafia wouldn't be with him any longer. And so it was a reminder once again of the fact that Catch young people when they're young and put them on the right path rather than the wrong path. And so, again, his own testimony is that. And again, habitual criminals. We have 3,100 counties in the United States. 50% of all the homicides take place in 2% of those 31 counties. 2%. So recognize there are more dangerous places than others. 
I've got that in one of my commentaries, but we need to keep moving. Sorry. Um, another one is fixed broken windows. And there are lots of ways to deal with this, but that's an interesting one because James Q. Wilson and others wrote about this idea of what's called the broken window theory. And that is that, indeed, if you don't clean up a neighborhood, it goes from bad to worse. He said, consider a building with a few broken windows. Uh, take the Bronx, uh, take uh, Har- Harlem, whatever. Uh, if the windows are not repaired, the tendency is for vandals to break a few more windows. Eventually, they may break into the building, even if it's unoccupied, perhaps become squatters or light fires inside. You've seen this before. In your neighborhood, if you see some graffiti, what do you do? You want to take it off right away because more graffiti leads to more graffiti. I love trains, and I've watched uh, some of these boxcars that come by, and they're just full of graffiti. And so the idea is, and this is something that uh, Mayor Giuliani did in New York. I remember when we lived in Connecticut, Suzanne and I went to Times Square, and it was scary when we went there in the late 1970s. And then uh, Rudy Giuliani applied some of these principles and now when you go to New York City, it's really kind of a fun place to be. Well, it's actually kind of gone down again. But you can see that sometimes when you pay attention to those kind of environmental issues, that is the case. One last point, and again, I didn't want to go too long here. How do we think about this biblically? Uh, there's a lot, but I'll just go through this one or two slides. There are two biblical principles. One is the idea of retribution. The other is the idea of restitution. Retribution is the act of punishing a criminal. And we can see this in the Old Testament. We see this in Exodus and Leviticus in other regulations in the Mosaic Law. The lex talionis. What? An eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. In other words, a reasonable punishment. Some people are struck by that, but it actually said we don't over-punish an individual, but we punish them commensurate to their crime. But the other part of that is restitution. Because if you look at this in the Old Testament, they were repaying the victim. The money wasn't going to the government, it was going to the victim. And our good friend Chuck Colson, when he was alive, used to talk about this in prison fellowship and justice fellowship, that sometimes restitution might be the best way to really provide a deterrence. And that's something I think we could talk about as well. And those are principles that are found in the Old and even the New Testament. Notice uh, Zacchaeus at one point, he said he was going to pay back. Remember that? And so you have some of those concepts also even in the New Testament. But finally, you know, we should also, I think, if we really want to be believing in good justice, support prison ministries and programs to really change the mindset of individuals. I know that we supposedly have rehabilitation programs in the prison system, but unless they're faith-based, they don't seem to work very well. And that's just not my theory. That comes from Byron Johnson, who is a professor at Baylor, who wrote a very good book called More God, Less Crime. These faith-based organizations and people of faith have made a profound impact. So if you want to solve the issue of the criminal justice system, support prison ministries, whether it's prison fellowship or whether it's uh, some of these other great ministries that are now providing education in the prisons, uh, seminary degrees, counseling degrees, and the rest, all based upon the fact that if an individual accepts Jesus Christ, and I'm sitting across... The other day, from a mafia don who is now loves God, 
Even my engineer said, I feel a little bit uneasy about bringing a mafia guy in here who was in the, pri- the witness protection program, but he has now got a heart for ministry. Can Jesus change a life? Chuck Colson and Robert Borelli. So again, if you find yourself saying, I'd like to read a little bit more about that, uh, Myron Johnson's uh, book, More God, Less Crime. He's a professor at Baylor. Outstanding research that he has done. And of course, my booklet that I've got up here on the criminal justice system. Again, we've looked at Proverbs on justice, but I wanted to bring it back to some basics. And you know, we have an election coming up here. I think you'd pay attention to who you're electing as your district attorney, your county judge, and those kinds of individuals, because biblical principles implemented actually do work. Parker?